As I said, we haven't taken the Lord's Supper in almost four months. The sense of urgency that the elders have had about our all gathering together again has everything to do with what we're going to do here in just a little bit. Yes, we believe the preaching of the word works by the spirit to build up God's people. But we also believe that when the whole church comes together to speak as a church and to act as a church and to, be, and to feed on Christ by faith as a church, that there is something unique that happens that is to God's glory and to our good. And the neglect of that thing for too long of a time will end up being to our detriment. So as you can imagine, as time went on, the elders started to grow a little bit antsy about our lack of gathering together. That an indefinite lack of being together under the word and around the, the table will not work to the benefit of our church. And this works so contrary to the way that we think about spiritual life as Americans, doesn't it? That as long as I, by myself, am having pretty good quiet times most days of the week, reading my Bible, praying from time to time, well, I'm doing okay. But I want to suggest to you this morning that God has designed much more than just your personal piety for your spiritual endurance in this life. And if you're becoming more and more like Christ, of his gospel being proclaimed and of those who are outside the church coming to know who he is in Christ. This is what Paul's ultimately concerned with is unity, is love. And at the heart of all of these big themes is the Lord's Supper. Our meditation in scripture this morning is not going to be as long as it normally is for obvious reasons, but I hope for the brief amount of time that we're together that we might be able to focus as much as God allows on his word that it would shape us in the days to come. We notice in verse 17 that Paul says that I can't commend you in something. Now, this is strange because in the paragraph just above in verse 2, he does commend them. Specifically, he commends them for following in the traditions that he had passed down to them as it relates to submission in the church. But here in verse 17, he says, I cannot commend you. Why? Because when you come together, he says, it's not for the better, but it's for the worse. That when you all come together as a church, and that phrase, come together, you're going to see that over and over in this passage. And what God has in view, what Paul has in view, is the corporate gathering of the church. That's what we see in chapters 10 all the way to 14. That's what he's concerned with in this section of his letter to the Corinthians. But he says when you come together, it should be for edification, but it's actually not for edification. When you come together, it's actually producing not edification, but division. And the reason, he says in verse 18, is because when they come together as a church, there are divisions among you. And he says, I believe it in part, or more literally, I believe the report of it. There has to be factions among you in order that those who are genuine be recognized. And he goes so far as to say in verse 20 that when you come together in this manner, when unity is jettisoned, when there's thoughtlessness and lovelessness toward the whole body, then though the elements of the supper may be present, it isn't the Lord's supper that you're taking. You might be drinking of the cup and you might be eating of the loaf, but that's not the Lord's supper. No, he says in eating in verse 21, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. 
what is happening in this church. You notice in the phrases, each one to his own. That this meal had become essentially an orgy of selfishness rather than a feast of sacrificial love to one another. It looks more like Corinthian society than a new society that God is building in Christ. That when the poor come into the gathering, they're going to look around and they're going to see a meal. They're going to see a party, even with all of its debauchery, that would not be that much unlike what they would see in Roman society. It doesn't look anything like what God had designed. And we notice in verse 22 that doing so, he says, in so doing, those who are abusing the Lord's Supper are despising the church and humiliating those who have nothing. A little bit of context is important here. Romans operated typically on a 10-day calendar. We operate on a seven-day calendar. Christians in the Roman Empire typically operated on a seven-day calendar in terms of their worship. The Jewish Sabbath on the Saturday was transformed into the Christian Lord's Day on Sunday because the first day of the week is when the Lord Jesus Christ rose from the dead. And so Christians did not understand the day on which they gathered to be a matter indifferent. Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday doesn't matter. They gathered on the Lord's Day, the first day of the week, because that was when Jesus Christ in his resurrection had inaugurated a new creation. And they were the first fruits of that new creation. And so as they gathered together, unlike us in this more Christianized West, Sunday was a work day. The first day of the week was a work day. Like any other day, it fell right in the middle of the 10-day Roman work calendar. Well, if you're rich and wealthy, well, you can get off work a little bit early. You don't need the funds quite as much. You don't have to work out in the fields until the sun goes down. You're able to come in and you're able to enjoy all of the elements of this supper, eating and, and feeding together. And then when those who are poor in the church come in, after getting off from work, coming in late in the evening, they walk in and nothing is left. The rich are all drunk, that they have sought to enjoy fellowship and in specifically this meal at the expense of their brothers and sisters. They had left brothers and sisters behind. They were acting selfishly and greedily. And that's the context, culturally speaking, that Paul is speaking into. He's saying, you look more like Corinthians than you do like Christ. Well, we may not be facing the same cultural challenges, but is it not the case that in our church, as with any other church, that fault lines inevitably exist? Some of those fault lines might be politically, or they might be philosophically with how we choose to, to raise our families, whether we choose to have lots of children or whether perhaps not as many as others and how we choose to do our schooling or, or whether we choose to vaccinate or not vaccinate, whether we choose to wear masks or not wear masks, whatever it may be. We've seen even in recent days, these fault lines not only exist, but that they can grow and widen when the Lord's Supper isn't calibrating the nature of the church and their relationship to one another in Christ. Friends, unlike the Corinthian church, as we see in these first handful of verses, what we're to understand is that to be a church is to give ourselves to one another. It is to resist thoughtlessness of one another. It's to resist all of those little ways in which you and I might be tempted to selfishness, to gravitate toward those who agree with us on any host of preferential or earthly or prudential things. 
Oh, friends, I think that's why when we gather together as a church, we should labor to evaluate whether or not our relationships are only with people who are just like us or whether or not our conversations are peppered with lots of brothers and sisters who are unlike us, whether by ethnicity, whether by background, socioeconomic status, whether by their own preferences, whether they're an athlete or whether they're a musician, whatever it may be. For we know that in Christ all are one. There is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female. All are one in Christ. Now, of course, those distinctions are real distinctions. But when it comes to the reality of the nature of who we are in Christ, those distinctions become subordinate to the unity that we have in Jesus. That means when we come together at a gathering like this, we don't consider one another according to what makes us different. Many of you might come as we've talked about time. And again, you might come into a gathering like this. You might look around and go, I don't think I have anything in common with any of these people. Oh, but brother and sister, I want to encourage you that if you are in Christ, participating with them in the body and the blood of the Lord Jesus, then you have everything in common because you with them have been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. So division, as we see in the first handful of verses, undermines the nature of the church. And we need to be strategic, intentional in all of the ways that we seek to undermine those fault lines that would seek to divide our church. Whether those are big ones politically, or even in all of the little small acts of selfishness that can snowball over time into big acts of selfishness. Many of us, when you come to a gathering like this or perhaps anything else as we do as a church, I would encourage you to come to those. Some of you, no doubt, as I mentioned when we began, might have thought this morning, what's the use of coming? I don't know that I'm going to get anything out of this. I'm going to be chasing kids around. It's going to be hot. I'm going to be distracted. I hope you realize what a uniquely individualistic and American way of thinking that is. What if just by your being here, your very example becomes an encouragement to your brothers and sisters who are struggling with the same kinds of doubts? What if what you get out of it isn't always the first thing that you need to be considering, but rather how can I be an encouragement to my brothers and sisters, even if by my own presence, even in struggling with kids on a hundred degree day, even if even if it feels perhaps like maybe I won't get as much out of this as I would if I were sitting at home in the cool of my living room watching a live stream. Friends, at the end of the day, we are people that give ourselves to God and one another. That we are active together in our pursuit of joy. J-O-Y. Many of you have heard this little helpful acronym. Jesus, others, yourself. I think that's really helpful. I don't know where I learned it somewhere along the way. Vacation Bible school, Awanas, who knows? But I think it's really helpful that the path to joy in the Christian life begins with Christ. That's who you were designed to be. You were designed to be in perfect communion with God through Christ by the power of the Spirit to enjoy Him and delight in Him, to receive His forgiveness and righteousness. And yet out of that love that God has shown you in Christ, to see that love therefore flowing over to others in the same way that God's love has overflowed to you. Jesus, others, yourself last. That's the exact path to joy that I think Paul is prescribing here. And that's what the Lord's Supper aims to calibrate in each one of our lives. And that's what we see in verses 23 to 26. 
It says, for I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it. We're going to notice a handful of things here. First of all, notice that Paul isn't speaking of any kind of tradition that he's made up himself. Oh, if you're here today and you're someone who's perhaps curious about Christianity, perhaps you sat in a religion class at the University of North Texas and and some religion professor told you that the Apostle Paul was the inventor of Christianity. Oh, let me tell you, that is to the contrary. In fact, Paul understands himself as teaching and doing nothing less than was instituted by the Lord Jesus Christ himself. And that's exactly what we see here. He's not speaking on his own authority. He's speaking on authority that has been given to him by the Lord Jesus Christ. And he's only speaking those things which Christ himself has given him to speak. And here he's giving them laying down those traditions for exactly what they're to do when they come together for this meal. And we'll see no less than four things. We'll see, first of all, that we remember Christ together. Twice in this paragraph, from verse 23 to 26, see if you can spot it. You see the word remembrance mentioned twice, that we remember Christ together. Remembrance is always important for God's people. Even in the Old Testament, Old Testament Israel under the Old Covenant would have feasts such as we will have together so that they might remember God's faithfulness to them and in understanding and knowing God's covenant faithfulness to them, they would be encouraged in their own faithfulness. And not only that, those who are outside of the covenant people, those who are outside the people of God would be instructed about who this God is. And so we are to remember Christ. But specifically, what are we to remember? We see two things. We're to remember, first of all, a body in the bread, a body that was given for us. The God, the son, according to the eternal counsel between himself and the father decided that he was going to save for himself a people by becoming a man, by being born of a woman, born under the law to walk in perfect obedience in a way that you and I as sinners could not do. And even in spite of his obedience and even in spite of all of the ways that he loved God perfectly and loved others perfectly, others who would not hear the gospel message that he was preaching about himself, feigned by the sovereign purposes of God to arrest him and to put him to death. Little did they know that that body that they hung on the tree would be the very body, not only whereby our righteousness or our unrighteousness would be laid on him, but his righteousness would be imputed to us. The way that a rich parent imputes money to a poor college kid's account. We were once poor and broke and all that was in Christ's account has now been transferred to our account by faith in Christ because of what he accomplished in his body. But not only that, we're also to remember the cup. It's a cup of a new covenant, a cup notably in his blood. Now, when Jesus was instituting this with a small group of Jews who'd grown up in the synagogues, they would have known immediately that a connection between covenant and blood would have hearkened back to what Moses did with Israel, sprinkling the crowd with the blood to ratify with sanctions the covenant between themselves and his people or between himself and his people. And here Jesus is saying that I am going to enact a new covenant with new sanctions, with new threats, with new curses, Only those threats and curses won't be laid on you. They'll be laid on me. 
This is the cup that he says he's going to drink. And this is really important imagery because all throughout the Old Testament, this image of the cup, Psalm 75, Isaiah 51, Jeremiah 25, it's all spoken of to refer to wrath being poured out on God's enemies or wrath being drunk to the dregs by those who oppose God. Do you remember what Jesus prayed in his Gethsemane prayer prior to being taken away to the cross? He said, Lord, if it be your will, may this cup pass from me. Jesus knew exactly what awaited him. He knew exactly what he was about to drink for us. So when we remember Christ and the Lord's Supper, we remember the cup that he drank to the dregs for sinners like us, that he drank the full cup of wrath that you and I deserve for our sins, though he was yet undeserving and did so willingly because God in his grace placed his love on you from eternity past and has chosen to save you for his glory through the work of his son and the proclamation of his gospel. So we remember Christ. But secondly, we also renew our covenant together. To come into a covenant is not only to enjoy all the blessings of a covenant, but it's also to faithfully fulfill all the obligations of that covenant. That we have been brought into a community together and we are now to live lives that give glory to God in the way that we seek to give ourselves to one another and loving one another. And that's exactly what we do when we come to the Lord's Supper, that we remember what exactly it is that Christ has called us to, that when we were baptized, that was God bringing the one into the many. But oh, when we come to the Lord's Supper, that is the many being made into one. And that oneness, that unity is meant to be marked in the way that we love, encourage, and guard one another with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so we renew our commitment, not only to God, but to one another. But thirdly, we proclaim the gospel together. You see that there? You proclaim the Lord's death. Gathering is more than just a social event. The mission of the church is ultimately the proclamation of the gospel. And any division in the church ultimately undermines that. So the reason that Paul starts with unity and leads to proclamation is because your division undermines and disqualifies the very message that you're trying to preach to the world. In fact, you don't look anything like the world. Your message is going to fall on deaf ears. Division undermines it. But when we come at the Lord's Supper, we proclaim and reinforce with our unity what God has done in Christ. Fourthly, We feed on Christ by faith until he returns. You notice that last phrase in verse 26, until he comes. This has been something that Christ has instituted for his churches to do regularly until he returns. And we do it over and over and over again, knowing two things. Number one, we know, first of all, that we've been commanded to come. This is not optional. This is ultimately what makes the Lord's gathering the gathering of the church on the Lord's day, obligatory for all Christians because the Lord's Supper is not optional. He's commanded us to come and partake together in doing this. But secondly, we've not only been commanded to come, but you and I, when we come, we come with a happy expectancy because this is a dress rehearsal. You remember what Jesus told his disciples? 
that one day I'm going to leave. You won't be eating and drinking with me anymore, though you are now. But one day you will eat and drink with me in my kingdom. This is just a dress rehearsal that looks forward to the wedding feast of the Lamb when we are with him once again. And so what the Lord's Supper does is it lifts our eyes off of ourselves It puts our eyes on one another and then shifts our eyes to that glorious promised future that we are going to get to enjoy forever with Christ. That we feed on Christ by faith until he returns. So friends, when we come to the Lord's Supper together, we do so not because we've proven ourselves worthy to come for yet another week. It's because we're sinners in need of grace. And Christ has called us to persevere through this life and into the next. And he has not commanded us to do anything that he has not given us abundant resources to accomplish. That he gives us grace in the gathering of the church, in the singing of the church, in the preaching of the word, and in the enjoyment of the Lord's Supper together. So that he might not only give us grace, but that he might also give us one another. So we help one another follow Jesus until he comes again, persevering through this life and into the next. And so when we come, brothers and sisters, what I want to encourage us to do is focus not on the elements. At the end of the day, despite all the controversies the church has had throughout the centuries on what exactly is happening here, the focus is not on the bread. The focus is not on the cup. The focus is not on whether or not it should be a big feast or little wafers. The focus is on Christ. That is what it's ultimately signifying. That is what it's ultimately pointing to. And we don't want to get lost in those secondary matters. So we focus not on the elements themselves, but we focus on participating together in Christ through the Spirit. As God feeds us, nourishes us, strengthens us to be faithful on Monday morning together. Well, finally, in verses 27 to 34... We see that selfish division is a sin that brings judgment. We've seen then that it undermines the nature of the church. And then we've seen in the last handful of verses that true unity is ultimately in Christ. But in these last handful of verses, 27 to 34, we see selfish division is sin that brings judgment. Paul says in verses 27 to 29, that those who participate unworthily drink judgment on themselves. In fact, he says in verse 27 that they, do, that they are guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. Now, I want to pause here for just a moment because I imagine that there's many of you, perhaps some of you, that when you come and you take the Lord's Supper, perhaps because of your own backgrounds, perhaps because of some misunderstandings on what happens here, this might be perhaps an anxiety-inducing exercise. You might wonder, am I worthy? Have I been good enough this week? Have I obeyed Jesus enough? Friends, that is not what Paul is talking about. If unworthy people don't come to the table, nobody's coming to the table. The table is for unworthy people. It is for sinners that need grace. That's every single one of us. And so what Paul is not talking about are those who are unworthy because they're sinners What Paul's talking about is those who are unworthy because even though they would eat and drink, they have not confessed Christ as symbolized in the body, the bread. They have not ultimately recognized Christ as Lord. They have not submitted to him 
as Savior. They have not sought forgiveness of their sins. As far as they're concerned, this is just one happy party and we're just eating a meal together. Well, he says that kind of participation, that participation in verse 28 is not only a sin against Christ, a sin against the body and the blood, but in verse 29, it is a sin against the body because it doesn't discern the brothers and sisters in the church. You realize this is ultimately what God is doing in the Lord's Supper. This is not for us to come and return to our seats and have a little quiet time with Jesus. A solemn experience of examining ourselves. No such pietism belongs in the church. No, this is a supper that recalls who we are to God, belonging to him in Christ, and who we are to one another. And so what Paul is saying is to come to the supper while rejecting the gospel and rejecting the people of God. That is to drink judgment on yourself. In fact, he says, that's why many of you are being ill. I'd love to just skip over this for the sake of time. But that seems a little bit confusing. And it shouldn't though. That God is providential all over everything. Nothing happens in this world or in your body that doesn't ultimately come from the hand of the Lord to serve his good purposes. And it may in fact be that there are times just in the church here in many of our lives where we face bitter providences in our lives because God is trying to get our attention. I want us to stop for just a moment. Cease from always having some kind of materialistic or naturalistic explanation for everything. And go, God wants me to take my eyes off of myself and off of the world and to examine myself. Is Christ really my hope? Is he really my righteousness? Have I really come to trust in him? Do I believe in my, have I confessed with my lips that he is Lord? And do I believe in my heart that God has raised him from the dead? Well, God is kind to do that to his people. That his discipline, much like we do as parents to our children, is part of the way that he equips us and strengthens us to endure in this life faithfully all the way to the end. Because if we don't persevere to the end, then we'll be found in that day to not ultimately belong to Christ. So God in his grace ensures that we do just that, not only through the Lord's Supper, but in his gracious discipline. And so, brothers and sisters, this is a serious matter. This is why we take the Lord's Supper so seriously. My fear is that many churches in playing fast and loose with the Lord's Supper grant too many people false assurances that they are something that in fact they are not and their lives profess to be something other than what they say they are. Because what we're doing as a church when we come together and what we're doing at the Lord's table is no less than no less at stake than the assurance of salvation. You realize that when you were baptized, that is the church according to God's design declaring, we think you're a Christian. And when the whole church comes together to enjoy the Lord's Supper, that is the whole church declaring over one another to all those who come, we still think and declare that you're still a Christian. That's why those who walk in unrepentant sin and removed from the church are barred from the Lord's Supper. It's why we fence the table. It's why we aim to be really careful in who we bring into the membership of our church by a credible profession of faith. It's why, it's why we want to be really careful with our children, both in baptism and allowing the Lord's Supper. Friends, if, you're, if your children have not been baptized, have not been declared by the church to in fact, yes, we believe that they're a believer with a credible profession of faith, then for the sake of their own souls, don't let them take the Lord's Supper. 
spend this time instead for their exclusion to explain what's going on. Talk to them about the gospel. Talk to them about what it looks like to ultimately go from the outside to being on the inside by faith in Christ alone. Oh, this works so contrary to the way that we normally think about things. Exclusion is a bad word. But I want, to con- I want you to consider this morning that exclusion is God's grace to bring many to repent and believe in Christ. Remember what I said earlier? It's for the ongoing work of our own faithfulness in the world, but it's also for the instruction that uh, for those who are outside of God's people. So we don't want to play fast and loose with either baptism or the Lord's Supper. That those who come to the table are those who have been saved by the grace of God, who have turned from their sin and trusted in him. Those who have been united to Christ, united to Christ by faith and united to brothers and sisters in the church. Friend, if you're here and you're not a Christian, I would encourage you, as you refrain from participating with us this morning, but watch what's going on, that you would consider for a brief moment what exactly is happening. That you are a sinner deserving of the wrath of God. And though he has been merciful to you to give you yet another day and another breath, that you would be here with us and hear the good news that perhaps today would be the day of salvation for you. There's coming a day where his mercy will no longer persist in your life and you will know only judgment. You will know the cup that Christ has drank for his people because you will be drinking that for eternity and you will not exhaust that cup. Oh, but friend, if you would trust in Christ, no longer trusting in yourself, in your own righteousness, your feeble, spotted righteousness, oh, but rather you would trust that that God can forgive you. All of your sin in Christ is sufficient. And that the blood of Christ can cover you and wash you and cleanse you and that you would cling to Christ. Oh, friend, then I would hope you know that Christ has drank that cup for you. And he drank it to the dregs. And there is not one drop of wrath remaining for those who have been brought by God's grace to repent and to trust in Christ. You realize that's what we're celebrating when we come. That's what I pray that you would consider as you perhaps feel a slight sting of exclusion. Oh friend, that exclusion is God's grace to you this morning that you would repent and trust in Christ. And so why have we waited so long to do this? It's because the Lord's Supper is ultimately a whole church act It's why we discourage you from doing it in small groups. It's why we discourage you from doing it at home. It's because families are not churches. The church, those who gather under the word and around the table, that is what constitutes a church. And until the whole church can come together in one place at the same time, we cannot enjoy the Lord's Supper together. In effect, what we've done for the last four weeks, according to verse 33, is when we come together, we wait for one another. We've had 40, 50, 60 of you coming to our gathering on Sundays while the other half of you have been watching at home and we've not taken the Lord's Supper. Why? Because we are one church. We are one body. We are a people of a loaf, one loaf. And when half the loaf is missing, we don't take the loaf. But when all those who are able and worthy are here, ah, then we enjoy the Lord's Supper together so that we might be reminded of our unity in Christ and that we might go day by day seeking to help one another follow Jesus, locking arms with one another 
so that we may, may all reach home safely together. Pray with me and we'll enjoy the Lord's Supper together.